Only You are worthy of our praise. Only You are worthy of our worship. Lord, You are worthy because of who You are. We praise You for that. And we praise You for what You've done in our hearts and in our lives. We praise You that You give us life. We thank You, Father, for Your Word, Your Spirit. We pray that throughout this coming time, Lord, throughout the day, that we would ever be mindful of Your presence with us. You will not leave us alone. You are here. We're so deeply grateful for that. We thank You. We praise You through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. In the, uh, in the late 1800s, Samuel Logan uh, Bringle was the senior leader in uh, Boston's Salvation Army ministry. And as Salvation Army uh, members are apt to do, why uh, one night he found himself uh, preaching outside of a bar. Uh, while he was preaching there, one of the patrons who didn't like what he was saying picked up a brick and threw it and hit him in the head. Uh, it was uh, over a week before his wife and his, his family knew whether he was going to live or die. In fact, his, he, he did live and his recovery took about 18 months, during which time he wrote a, a little a book entitled Helps to Holiness. Thousands of copies of this little book were published. His, his wife saved the brick and, uh, and had Genesis 50-20 engraved on it. Uh, but as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. So after he could preach again, then uh, people would thank him for his little book. And his, his response was always the same. If, if there had been no little brick, there would have been no little book. It's amazing how God does these things in people's lives. Recently, I was reading a story uh, about a time when Johnny Erickson Tata was uh, writing to a 17-year-old boy named Tommy who had just suffered the same devastating injuries that she had 50 years earlier that had left her a quadriplegic. And halfway through the letter, she suddenly stopped and she realized in her heart that she could still taste the anguish of that moment. And with tears, she broke down crying. Johnny had hated her paralysis. I don't know if you've read her book or heard her speak. But she would take in her motorized wheelchair and just bang it again and again and again against the wall until the sheetrock was cracked, hoping in some way that it might throw her off and end her life. It was the most that she could do. And early on she found, as she calls them, dark companions who helped numb her depression with scotch and cola. 
She just wanted to disappear. She just wanted to die. Yet somehow she she did it. Or as she says, the Holy Spirit did it in me. She began to, to see that there were more important things in life than walking on legs or being able to use her hands. She wrote this. I know it sounds incredible, but I really would rather be in this wheelchair knowing Jesus as I do than be on my feet without him. But whenever I try to explain it, she goes on to say, I don't know where to begin. You know, many of the greatest saints in history have gone through dark valleys like Samuel did or like Johnny did. Uh, They felt the absence of God's presence. C.S. Lewis said it so eloquently after his beloved wife Joy died when he confessed that this silence from God, this feeling that God had abandoned him, Uh, made him doubt whether there was uh, God's existence, whether God even existed at all. He wrote this, There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. Why is God so present, a commander in our time of prosperity, and so very absent a help in our time of trouble? These are not the words from C.S. Lewis that make it to his greatest quotes list. But they are his words. Isaiah said as much as he did. He said this in 64 and 1. He said, you have hidden your face from us. Jonah said it. Elijah said it. Moses said it. And sometimes we too feel that God is not there. There's, there's no point in turning to Him because He doesn't hear our prayers anyway. Or even if He hears them, He doesn't answer them. We're too insignificant. Would God call someone to follow Him? I mean, it's, it's, it's like He sends them zigzagging across the wilderness. I mean, really, think about it. When He gave Moses the vision to lead His people out of Israel... Moses was ready, and, and, and God said what? He said, I want you to hang out here and herd sheep for the next 40 years. I mean, can you imagine the, the distressing conversations that, that he would have had here? It was four decades later that the Lord spoke to him in the burning bush, finally with the command to go. Now, I'm not certain at all this morning that I can explain the things in uh, Samuel's life. He had the he seemed to have the best. But nevertheless, I'll guarantee you during that 18 months, he suffered. He suffered. They just didn't write about it as often and as honestly in some ways. I can't explain about Johnny. I can't explain even about. Elijah or Moses, but I can share with you one of the most powerful techniques that I use personally to bring my my feelings into submission to Christ. Have you ever noticed that when you feel deeply about something, uh, if you feel deeply about something, you know that it must objectively be true? 
This is an interesting thing. It's an interesting dynamic in, in, in the human mind. It stems from this human propensity that was probably best stated by uh, Mark Twain when he wrote this, My life has been filled with terrible misfortunes, uh, most of which never happened. <laughs> I mean, this is so true, this is so important, but it's often misunderstood or ignored, and that is this, our minds are constantly bombarded with negativity and negative thoughts and visions of horrible things that might happen to us in the future. And, and, and we develop reasons why we shouldn't do what the Lord may be calling us to do because we're afraid of what might happen. And in the end, most of these horrible things do happen. Yeah, but most of the things that we conjure up in our mind never, never come about. This can be so negative. Uh, for example, if you feel deeply that someone doesn't like you, Mm, that person doesn't like me. So then when you see them from across the room and you perceive something to be a frown, oh, and that's a targeted, destructive message. I'm frowning at you because I want you to feel my dislike for you. You know, if you notice him or her talking with someone else and they're talking quietly, ooh, what are they talking about? Well, they must be talking about me. They're sharing some nasty little morsel that they shouldn't be over there and it's about me becomes a whisper campaign against you. And so then you have a social cancellation of some time, and now, now you're being shunned. You know, an email becomes an arrow. What do you mean by that? What does that little explanation, what does that emoji mean anyway? I can take that three different ways, you know? And so then what actually happens is pretty soon our emotions take control of us and as C.S. Lewis says, and I'll quote him later on this, we begin to think that our emotions are actually our thinking as if they were rational, as if they were logical. And then we make conclusions on them. And guess how we begin to respond? We're the ones who begin to ignore the other person. We're the uh, ones who begin to become critical of them. We're the ones who take that information and we turn it on them and it probably in most cases means nothing nothing i mean really how many people in the universe want to take the time and the energy to dislike you i mean, think about it really most people are just trying to live they just want to get through the day intact in one piece. Nobody has the excess emotional energy to target you. Very few times does that happen. So what's the little technique that I use? It's biblical, you know. Satan's language is what? It's rhetorical, but you know it. You can say it out loud. When Satan speaks, he lies. How do you know that Satan's lying? Right? Because he's opened his mouth. That's his language. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says that the language of Satan is to lie. Well, God's language is truth. God cannot lie. I love that. It's not simply that he does not or that he will not. His character is such that he cannot lie. He would, it, would, it would be a violation of who he is and that's not going to happen. So if God has spoken 
about an issue or a challenge or a subject, then what he says about it, even if it's only one verse, what he says about it is true. Whatever that is. Anyone who uh, is any pilot or even anyone who's trained to be a pilot and even never got their license has taken one hour of instrument training. I'll tell you what, they will tell you without equivocation. They will tell you without hesitation or any ambiguity at all. Do not trust what you feel. Trust your instruments. So what's our instrument here? Our instrument is the Word of God. And that's what we're to, to fly by. Now, I'm not saying that all our feelings are wrong. I'm not saying that all. Don't misunderstand me. In fact, most of the time it's right. But you know in your heart when you're going to some dark place. You know in your heart when the feelings that you have aren't matching the reality around you. And the Holy Spirit touches your heart and says, that's not right. So how do we get rid of it? By not thinking about it? I tell you what, the, the harder you try not to think about something, the more you're going to think about it. It's the way the human mind works. And so when emotions drive us to dark places in, in, in my own life, what I say is my emotions are encouraging me to believe a lie. To believe a lie. And I will not believe a lie. I will believe the truth. I mean, to C.S. Lewis, to Elijah, to David, to Moses, to go on and on with the people, to Johnny, that God had abandoned them was at least for a moment a lie that they felt to be true. But what is the truth? Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. We'll be looking at a few verses. Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. It's on page 801 of the Pew Bible. And we're going to look there and we're going to see the glorious truth in Scripture. We're going to find out that there is nothing that can separate us from God's love. So in this text, what Paul does is a beautiful thing. He kind of scans our in, in the entirety of our ability to comprehend. And he takes us all the way across that and he uses uh, ten potential things that could, that could come after us. And he, does, he uses four doublets and two singlets. And he says this, beginning in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus 
our Lord. So right at the very beginning in verse 35, he asks a great and penetrating question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So why is he asking that question? I mean, what's the importance of that question? Why that question? Why that point? Well, I'll I'll tell you, it's clear. He had just finished describing the sufferings and the groanings that we go through, some of which are so deep, some of which are so deep, and some of you have experienced this, and given life, all of us will at one point or another, where we don't even know how to pray, where the groanings are so deep in our heart and the pain is so real there, we can't even put it into words and we don't even know what to ask for. And it's at that point, of course, that the Holy Spirit intercedes in our behalf. He had just been talking about that and he's saying, when you come under that kind, I mean, he even says it right in the middle of the text, we're counted as sheep to be slaughtered. The Holy Spirit himself intercedes at that point. Put simply, I tell you, without Christ, life is, as Thomas Hobbes said it was, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, And short. With Christ, life still may be some of those things. But it is never solitary and it is never poor because Christ Himself will never leave us, will never forsake us. Even as Paul put it in verse 36, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. What a wonderful truth it is to know, to feel the weight of this, the gravity of this. First, who is it that loves you? It's the Son of, it's the Son of God. And He is divine. And He is high above us. He is exalted at the right hand of the Father. And He has all power. Second, that love cost Him His life. It cost him the death on the cross, and not simply a horrid physical death, but he also faced the wrath of God on the cross. And let me just say this, no one, not your spouse, not your child, not your parent, no one loves you as much as Christ. And third, because of his love, we've been delivered We no longer have to face an eternity separated from God because of the love of Christ. We no longer have even the possibility of facing the fury of the wrath of God. Instead, we will receive and enjoy eternal life. The song says it well, amazing love. How can it be? that Thou, my God, shouldst die for me. I mean, His love is an amazing love. It's absolutely staggering. Psalm 116, verse 15, reads this way. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His godly ones. This word precious, how often do you use precious in your common speech. 
Precious is not a word that we use very much. In fact, it's only used in the Bible, or at least in the New Testament, four times. That's it. Four whole times is that word used. And it's used about the preciousness, uh, how we're precious to the Lord. You are precious to God. So if you're feeling this, and this is a feeling, this is not a fact. This is a feeling, but it's a feeling that we fight and we have to struggle with, that there is something or someone that can remove you from the love of God. It is simply not true. I want you to let the truth of the Word of God wash over you. Because regardless of your feeling, the truth is upon us. Earlier in this passage... In verse 28, he says this, I know that all things work together for good. What a tremendous comfort that is. But comfort is not limited to that verse, not by any means. In fact, the comfort that follows is so clearly stated that a small child can understand it. But even if a small child can understand it, uh, and even though the text is very clear, I think we err if we think we can understand its its depth. And so what Paul does here, I, I suppose it could be compared to what a father or a mother might do uh, with a child that is afraid. We traveled, uh, as, especially in preparation to go on the mission field, our family, we, we traveled a lot. And so we would find ourselves in different homes constantly. And one of the things, if you're not, if you haven't done a lot of traveling, you then you probably never woken up going, "Where am I? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where I am." And this this can be really tricky, especially if it's in the middle of the night and you got to go to the bathroom. You, you know, you don't know where you're at. You don't know where you're where you're going. And one practice that we had as a family was recon, right? So if you recon something, that's going to help. So you go and you look where you're going to be. You look where the rooms are and the hallways and the bathroom and so forth. And then just before you fall asleep, this is the most important part, you tell yourself where you're at. And then when you wake up in the middle of the night, you know, at three in the morning or or whatever, you just simply uh, know. This was particularly helpful for me on deployments because sometimes I I had no idea where I was at. But anyway... Uh, I remember one night, Marie in particular, she couldn't she couldn't sleep. And so I kind of led her around different places. You know, we did the whole look under the bed thing. Monsters, Inc., right? And so you got to look in the closets and you got to check everything out. And uh, and I told her, you know, there's nothing to be afraid of. Uh, There's nothing waiting to harm you. And besides, I'm here and and your mommy's here and she just needed that affirmation. She needed that, uh, that sense of safety and, and love in order to sleep. And by the way, that is uh, the only way that we can live, uh, not live, we can exist. But to live an abundant life, you have to have a safe 
and loving space where you can rest. That's the only place where you can make true emotional or behavioral changes in your life. And there's a lot of unsafe and unloving space around us. Oh, my goodness. We'll be opposed in all kinds of directions as as believers, not only uh, from Satan, uh, but also the, the uh, ungodly. You know, they're going to they're going to strike at our faith and our our freedom. You know, this world that values tolerance so much, they won't tolerate you. Is that an amazing thing? That's just staggering to me. And the thing is, if you point out their intolerance, they don't get it. They literally, they, they, they don't see it. And according to verse 36, that hatred may even be such to be sufficient to take away life. Slaughtered. But will any of these things separate us from the love of Christ? Absolutely not. No matter how difficult your life is, particularly because you're a child of God, suffering persecution and so forth, you will never lose the love of Christ. He goes through some of these things. Neither death nor life. I mean, death is, is fearsome in its inevitability. And in its finality. But you know, life is fearsome too. One of my favorite quotes as it relates to to this, President Kennedy wrote it. He said, the courage of life is often a less dramatic spectacle than the courage of a final moment. But it is no less a magnificent mixture of triumph and tragedy. A man does what he must in spite of personal consequences, in spite of obstacles and dangers and pressures. And that is the basis of all morality. Life is tough, but death is that finality is staggers us. You know, even when death is fully expected, even when fully expected, when it comes, it's sudden. It's still sudden and the emptiness that it can produce is cavernous and abruptly through death. Someone who's dear to you, a child, a sibling, a parent, a beloved husband or a beloved wife is taken. And not only that, but this also includes our own death. Hebrews 9:27 says this, for it is appointed unto man once to die. We all face it. Every single one of us. Some of us might face a sudden death and others might face a prolonged process of of dying. But you have to understand the force of Paul's word. Death is the ultimate in its power to separate. That's Paul's point. Death separates us from earthly life, from earthly possessions and earthly relationships. But what Paul is saying is that Christ is the ultimate in power in giving life. Giving eternal life. A life that's enduring. A life that's blessed. A life that is lived in the presence of love of Christ. And Christ also when we have this perspective, gives us the ability to see our troubles in perspective with a larger picture. And that diminishes the scale. And he pronounces, death will never separate the child 
of God from Christ and his love. He also says angels nor principalities, neither angels nor principalities. And you may be surprised to see angels on, on, on this list because we think of angels exclusively as messengers of God. But there are also angelic forces that are in opposition to God. We see that in Revelation uh, 12 among a whole host of other places. And these those particular angelic forces are evil and they are powerful. And they're busy using the world to tempt us to sin, right? Because sin, sin sets us aside, doesn't it? Doesn't it? You know, you can have a momentum going. You can be feeling about good about your relationship with Christ and about your walk with the Lord and some sin just knocks you right off and it sets you aside. That's what they want. They want you out of, out of, out of the battle. They would like nothing better than for you to commit some sort of sin that would be the worst kind of all in hopes that it would cause Christ to stop loving us. But even... And I hope the power of the Word of God will rest on you in this. Even were you to commit such a sin, Christ will still love you. And in His love, He will bring you back to Himself through repentance. Not even Satan and all the power that he musters can separate the Savior's love from you. Rulers, it goes on to talk about rulers. You know, that, that refers to these spiritual and earthly powers. Consider the, 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 the tyrants who have reigned in the past century and the millions of people, often their own people. In fact, almost exclusively their own people in many ways have died at their hands. I mean, look at the Christians. Look at the Christians in the Middle East who have suffered under ISIS. Our media has largely hidden that. But over the past decade, it has been almost a cleansing. Paul assures us that while rulers might separate us from our earthly life, or they can separate us from our homes or whatever, they cannot separate us from the love of God. Then he goes on, things present or things to come. I mean, what's the first question that comes into your mind? I'll tell you what the first question that comes to my mind is, why didn't he say past? I mean, hello, it's usually our past that, that weighs us. It's our past that draws us, that draws us down, yet it's not present there. You know, it's the the events in our lives that it causes guilt or shame. No, he. I mean, he's just straight up with it. He's just. He's going right past that. Why? Because our sins are forgiven. Forgiving those or forgetting those things, he says in another place, which are behind. I press on. Paul, above all people, would have to worry about the past. 
I dare say that none of us have committed murder or taken part in a murder. I can't say that universally, but probably not. None of us have deliberately persecuted to the point of the loss of employment or the loss of home or the loss of property. None of us have separated families such that the family unit was disintegrated or destroyed. Paul did. Paul did. And yet, Paul says, that's, that's forgiven. Press on. Paul focuses instead on things present and things to come. I mean, the challenges that we face in the present, the trials that we fear in the future. He wants us to consider the present and what might be possible to separate us from the love of God. Is war possible to separate you from the love of God? Are earthquakes, are, are famines, flooding, disease, whatever it might be. Things to come, you know, this kind of goes back to the Mark Twain quote. What's going to happen in the future? Something, nothing's happening now, but boy, something might happen to separate us from the love of Christ. He says, no, that's not going to happen. He talks about powers. This goes back to the rulers and perhaps at a different level, but the outcome is the same. Security in the love of Christ. Neither height nor depth. Now, what this is likely a reference to is what we would call today astrology. There are many, many people in the world today, many in our country, who believe that our lives are fated by the stars. So it matters what, what house you were born in, you know, and what constellation and what star was rising and all of this and that and the other thing. That's likely what he's talking about, about the stars that control our, our uh, fate. But he says that neither height nor depth is strong enough to separate us from God. There's no fate out there. There's no fate out there that can separate you from the love of God. It could be a reference to the heights. I mean, literally looking up but it, and the depths down in the ocean, perhaps. But the, the meaning uh, has that we that we draw from that is there's ultimately nothing to fear. Comets, you know, coming down or tsunamis coming up, we're not to fear there. It could also mean the height of our emotions. Our greatest joys or our greatest sorrows cannot separate us from God. And then he makes a really starting, startling declaration. He says, or any other created thing. The Apostle Paul knows that he can't cover everything. You can't cover it all. But that's so he goes here and he and he says there is nothing, absolutely nothing that is or will ever be or ever was that had the power to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So Paul says, hey, listen, if I missed anything, I, this last statement is designed to cover it all, whatever it might be. It's designed to cover whatever you're facing, whatever you're struggling with right now. It also includes ourselves. We always reserve that one. The hubris of man is such that we say, nothing 
can take us out of the hand of God. Nothing can separate us from His love, but I can. You know, that's just arrogance. No, you cannot. There's nothing. Are you a created being? Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> yes. No, nothing in creation, that includes us, is or will ever be able to separate us from Christ. It includes our failures. Listen to me. It includes the hatred that we've held. It includes our worldliness, our greed, our complaining, and so on and so on endlessly. All of those things are included because while Christ has every right to say, I'm not going to love you anymore, He does not. The amazing conclusion then is this. There is absolutely nothing in the entirety of the universe that can take you away from the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing at all. Let me want to go back to C.S. Lewis for a second here. He really wrestled. He wrestled mightily when his beloved wife, we call her Joy, uh, I think her, he called her Helen. But when she died, his call to atheism came back to him, which is what he was before he came to God. He said, God doesn't care about you. God may not, you may not even be there at all. And I don't want us to idealize what Lewis went through because there's nothing to idealize. Uh, but at the end of the day, and after some of these great challenges, Lewis wrote this regarding his doubts about God's love. Why do I make room in my mind for such filth and nonsense? Do I hope that if feelings disguise itself as thought, I shall feel less? He says some other things, but he goes on to say this. To see, in some measure, like God, His love and His knowledge are not distinct from one another, nor from Him. We could almost say He sees because He loves and therefore loves although He sees. Lewis and Paul are in perfect agreement. At the end of all things, the one who sees you best, the one who sees you, sees you, loves you most. The words to the song when I was writing the end of this came to me. I will quote them to you now. Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin, Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was brought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Leave behind. Your regrets and mistakes come today. 
There's no reason to wait. Jesus is calling. Bring your sorrows and trade them for joy. From the ashes a new life is born. Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, what a Savior. Isn't He wonderful? Sing hallelujah. Father, we can only for a time, sometimes perhaps in our lives, very few times, come close to understanding what Paul is communicating to us today. That there is nothing, there is nothing It staggers the mind to think that your love, born of your sight and your character, is so intractable that we cannot be separated from it ever. Those of us who have trusted your Son, Jesus Christ, as our Savior. I pray, Father, that we would live not in the lie that You would abandon, but in the truth that You are ever present with us. We thank You through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.